listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading Brewability's Cleanish Comedy Showcase, Inclusive Fun for Everyone, by Elizabeth Monahan. From Denverite, I'll be reading Mike Johnston Explains Why Denver Homeless Sweeps Resume with No Housing Offers, by Kyle Harris. And With Rainfall Up, Denver Water Use is Down, by Rebecca Tauber. From Westward, I'll be reading, Like a Bross, Westward Reporter Tackles the Decalibron Loop, which is finally open, by Benito El Kelty. And four, Thief Posing as Golfer Wanted for Stealing Golf Bags Outside Denver Clubhouses, by Chris Perez. I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. This first article is from the Denver Voice. Brewability's Cleanish Comedy Showcase, Inclusive Fun for Everyone, by Elizabeth Monahan. Brewability is an Inglewood, Colorado-based brewery and pizzeria where anyone, including individuals with disabilities, can eat and work. Since its inception in 2016, the establishment has received media coverage from the likes of Colorado Public Radio and Westward, as well as national and international media outlets like the BBC, Forbes, and LA Times. Tiffany Fixter, who launched Brewability and Pizza Ability, went from special education teacher to business owner. While her restaurant is known for its made-to-order pizza and craft beer, Brewability has become a popular spot because it's a safe and inclusive space. It's also a welcoming venue for community gatherings and free events, including drag bingo, goat yoga, book signings, and trivia nights. Recently, Brewability added to its roster of events with its Cleanish Comedy Showcase. The idea for the comedy show came from Denver-based comic Jennifer Sutherland, who has been a regular at Brewability since it opened its South Broadway location. Brewability has been my local hangout for years, said Sutherland. I knew there were events, but I wasn't sure if they offered an open mic night, and asked Tiffany. She told me a story about one open mic night they hosted where someone told a hurtful joke. That's when I suggested a comedy showcase so I could steer the comics in the right direction. Fixter liked Sutherland's idea and agreed to try a couple of approaches before including the showcase as a recurring event. According to Sutherland, the first comedy showcase was more of a talent show for brewability employees. She then began to reach out to local comics whose work she enjoyed. In February of this year, Sutherland hosted the first monthly Cleanish Comedy Showcase, and so far, comedians have eagerly accepted invitations, or they have asked Sutherland if they could participate. Lisa Lane, who has done stand-up comedy for about seven years, is among those who contacted Sutherland directly. I saw my comedy friend Jennifer promoting the show on social media, loved the idea, and reached out to her for a spot, she said. Lane said she appreciated that the showcase focused on clean comedy and saw it as an opportunity to build an inclusive set that appeals to a variety of audiences. 
I've been actively working this year on developing my clean material because when something is funny without being dirty to a broad spectrum of people, I know it's a really good joke, said Lane. Veteran comic Ralph Great, who was a writer for comedian George Wallace and open for both the OJs and the Isley Brothers, accepted Sutherland's invitation to perform at Brewability because he has experienced a dearth of available opportunities for clean, clever comedians in Denver, especially if they're black. People expect the same type of racial, vulgar material that they see most black comics doing on social media, Great said. The Cleanish Comedy Showcase was the perfect chance for Great to get paid to perform in a venue that offers comedy the entire family can enjoy. When Sutherland asked comedian Jake Cameron if he would participate in the showcase, he said yes, even though he wasn't familiar with the venue. I had no idea that brewability was such an inclusive place and employed people all across the neurological spectrum, said Cambron. I'm autistic, so it instantly put me at ease and let me know what kind of material would be appropriate for the audience. Given the opportunity to return to the showcase, Cambron said he would do so in a heartbeat. And to anyone who isn't sure what to expect, Cambron said people should approach the show with an open and kind heart. They should see the show because it's a joy to see so many neurodiverse people able to come together and laugh in a positive environment. It's definitely the kind of place where you leave your poor attitude at the door, he said. According to Sutherland, Brewability employee Michael Newland, who participates in almost every showcase, is a crowd pleaser. For his set, Newland draws from his repertoire of over 400 impressions, including Donald Duck, Oscar the Grouch, and Grover. Newland, who started doing impressions as a hobby, said he likes getting a chance to make people happy and smile. Being on stage is a great, great thing, said Newland. It makes me feel proud to do something like this. Sutherland says she's excited to see how well the Cleanish Comedy Showcase is taking off, but it's the reaction of her fellow comics who point to why Sutherland's idea is a win for the comics and audience alike. Brewability offers great food and drink, loving service, and brilliant adaptations that make the experience fun and accessible for everyone, Lisa Lane said. Sharing the stage with comics and performing for an audience of various abilities is thrilling. When we laugh together, we seem far more alike than different. The Cleanish Comedy Showcase takes place on the first Wednesday of the month at Brewability, 3445 South Broadway. Tickets are free, but donations are appreciated. For more information on Brewability, Cleanish Comedy Showcase, or other upcoming events, visit brew-ability.com. The next two articles are from Denverite. Mike Johnston Explains Why Denver Homeless Sweeps Resume With No Housing Offers by Kyle Harris Mike Johnston's administration will conduct its first encampment cleanup Friday. Johnston had temporarily halted encampment sweeps while his administration transitioned into office, despite widely reported yet unfounded rumors that he had ended the practice. Friday's sweep will take place in the area between Stout Street, 22nd Street, California Street, and Park Avenue West. The Department of Transportation and Infrastructure, the Department of Health and Environment, and Denver Police will carry out the work. The justification for the forced removal of people living in the encampments is the need to clean up a rat infestation that is creating health risks for those living there, Johnston said. 
Advocates with the House Keys Action Network Denver said the rats have found an ideal habitat between the rocks that property owners have placed along the street to make it harder to set a tent up there. There have been only 17 sweeps in the name of public health since 2019, and just two since 2021, according to the data from the Department of Public Health and Environment. Most of the regular cleanups have been to address encumbrances in the public right-of-way and have been led by the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure. During the election, Johnston said every encampment cleanup would come with the promise of housing. That's not the case this time, and he's not trying to hide that. Sweeping encampments may help do away with the rats, but it does not help people living on the streets. But before Johnston can solve homelessness, he said, he needs to build housing, which his administration is working on. In the meantime, he contended, the sweeps are necessary for public health. As a solution, it doesn't work, Johnston said. It just means you're chasing people off one block and they end up on another block. And so that's why our real intentional focus has been access to housing and to shelter that is dignified and stable and secure. He referred to the sweeps as displacement, echoing homeless advocates who refer to them as traumatic displacement. As the city did under former Mayor Michael Hancock, workers will offer unhoused people space in group shelters, the same shelters that couples, people with pets, and those who find group living traumatizing have said don't work for them. People experiencing homelessness requested that Johnston visit the force cleanups to understand the harm that is perpetrated by the city. He said he will not be present on Friday, but unlike Hancock, he pledged to visit every encampment the city sweeps either before or during the sweep. We are going to make sure we have eyes on all steps of the process to get feedback and to make sure we think it works in correspondence with our values, which are treating every Denver resident with dignity and respect, he said. Outreach workers from the Headwaters Protectors Group, founded by former mayoral candidate Ian Thomas to FOIA, have been meeting with people in the soon-to-close encampment on behalf of the city. Workers have also been passing out a friendly letter to people at the encampment. The message explains the state of emergency Johnston declared on his first day in office, the city's efforts to house 1,000 people by the end of the year, a justification for the sweep and the city's long-term plan to help people transition into housing. The city and county of Denver has launched an effort to bring 1,000 Denverites safely indoors from the streets and permanently close encampments by the end of this year, the letter states. In the coming months, Outreach teams will be working to conduct housing assessments while a, while a coalition of partners work to make supportive housing, rapid rehousing, hotel rooms, and micro-community units available to help you transition from the streets. The letter goes on to explain the new units are in the development process and that the city is trying to keep both encampments and neighborhoods healthy, safe, and clean through outreach and trash collection efforts. However, in cases where the public right-of-way is blocked or where there are urgent health and safety risks, encampments still need to be addressed, the letter continues. City staffers and community outreach teams will conduct housing assessments, offer health services and storage, collect trash, and help people move from the shuttered encampment elsewhere. Not everybody's pleased with the plan. Anyone who thinks doing housing assessments will get these folks housing in the next week is delusional, noted Hand in a statement. 
Without creating more real housing, assessments will not lead to camp residents having housing to move to when a camp is swept. Here's the timeline. July 28th. The encampment received trash services and a closure posting, the same sort of sternly written warning issued in the Hancock era, according to the letter to residents. July 30th, the encampment received help with cleanup. July 31st, the Department of Housing Stability conducted outreach. August 1st through August 3rd, the Department of Public Health and Environment's mobile clinic, the Wellness Winnie, is showing up to the site to offer services. August 4th, the city will close the encampment, which will include removing people, discarding trash, and temporarily fencing off the area. The area will remain closed indefinitely while city employees clean up the block and ensure it is safe again. People's confiscated property will be temporarily stored at 1449 Galapagos Street for 30 days, and they can claim their belongings without fear of arrest, according to the notice posted near the encampment. If belongings aren't reclaimed, they will be taken to a different storage location for another 30 days. We wish we had a housing unit available to help you move into today, but please know that we will continue working tirelessly towards that goal in the months ahead the letter from the city states. In the meantime, we ask for your partnership by working with outreach teams on housing assessments, keeping your encampments clean, and promoting safety throughout the community. With rainfall up, Denver water use is down, by Rebecca Tauber. The rainiest June in Denver since the 1880s. Golf ball-sized hail, tornadoes, flooding, there is no shortage of records and bizarre weather events the Denver metro area has faced this rainy spring and summer. Above average rainfall also means that Denverites are using less water than usual for things like lawns and gardens. According to Denver Water, residents used 37% less water in June compared to average use from 1970 to 2022. While July's rainfall did not break records, Denver Water spokesperson Jimmy Luthie the Denverites used 18% less water this July compared to the past five Julys. Our customers' demand with water levels have been pretty low this year, and it really is a testament to our customers and how they value water and how they recognize, when it's wet out, I don't need to water as much, Luthie said. Coloradans are used to conserving water because of drought conditions, but at the beginning of July, the entire state was drought-free for the first time since 2019. While the southwest portion of the state now has some drought, Denver is still in the clear. Luthi said that the high levels of rainfall also mean Denver water has filled all the large reservoirs in the area. That's our goal every year, he said. A lot of our water supply comes in the form of snow melts in the mountains, so we definitely hope for snowy winters, but having this much rain throughout the spring and summer is only a good thing. But the question is how long things will last. With climate change threatening the Colorado River, a major water source across the west, there are bigger concerns about water access long term. Luthi cautioned against thinking this summer's rainfall will alleviate drought in Colorado forever. He said Denver water relies on heavy rainfall seasons to store water and protect against drier years. It's one year, and it's something that we can't always count on, he said. It's important for all of our customers to always be looking at efficient ways to use their water all year long. 
We can't always count on really wet years like this or really big snowy winters. The following articles are from Westward. Like a Bross, Westward reporter tackles the Decalibron loop, which is finally open by Benito El Kelty. Standing nearly 14,000 feet up on Mount Democrat, exhausted with my legs feeling like jello and lungs pleading for oxygen, I wondered if I really even wanted to summit the 14ers' menacing mountain face. My old high school buddy, Kadeen Rivas, was feeling the same way. Are you sure? Kadeen asked me about our last leg of climbing as he stood at the saddle between Democrat and its slightly taller neighbor, Mount Cameron. Turning back would mean failing to complete Colorado's famous Decalibron Loop, which finally reopened on Friday, July 28th, after months of being shuttered. Hikers have been champing at the bit to get back on top of Mounts Democrat, Cameron, Lincoln, and Bross, hence the name Decalibron, ever since the challenging and scenic quartet of climbs was shut down by property owner John Reber back in March. The decision came after Colorado lawmakers rejected a bill bill that would have protected landowners from potential lawsuits being filed by adventurers who get hurt while trekking in dangerous areas, such as those with abandoned mines. Reber was worried that the mine shafts on his private property, including ones he possibly didn't know about, would leave him vulnerable to legal buzzards looking to bankrupt him. When Kadeen and I went to check out the newly reopened Decalibron Loop on Saturday, July 28th, one of the first things we noticed were the wooden mouths of old mine shafts dotting the faces of each 14er. We had only planned to reach one summit that day, but knowing that access to the trail could be cut off again at some point, and that it might be more crowded if we returned at a later date, gave us some extra motivation. Yeah, let's do it, I said, to which Kadeen replied, shit, before continuing our ascent. The Decalibron Loop, located near the town of Alma, just about two hours of driving from Denver, is a seven-mile trail that was tied with Mount Elbert, the state's tallest peak, for the third most hiked trail of 2022. Around 21,000 people hiked to one of the four peaks that year. That was a 200% surge from what the loop saw in 2021, according to an annual report from the Colorado 14ers Initiative. Signs, discolored runoff, and collapsed wooden beams are what currently give away the location of many of the mines that concern Reber, a retired business executive who bought the peaks knowing that they were rich once in gold and silver, according to the Washington Post. Closer to the summit of Mount Bross, which is still off-limits because of the danger threat, the mine shafts look as if they are still open, but the rest of what we found on the ridges and faces of the mountain had red and white signs that read, No Trespassing. Kadeen and I had settled for shorter hikes up the smaller Hoosier Ridge, across State Highway 9 from the Decalibron Peaks, when we couldn't summit the best peaks of the Mosquito Range. Then there was the fact that we had to reserve parking to hike the nearby Quandry Peak. But Saturday was different. At around 13,000 feet, on our way up the face of Bross, we began seeing hikers who started to pass us on their way down. We greeted each of the adventurers and asked them how the trip to the top was. Once five of them had passed, including one woman coming down from the summit of Mount Bross, Gadine and I had seen enough. I think 14ers should be open to the public, the woman commented, 
giving us renegades the spark and motivation we needed to tackle Mount Bross, despite the closure. The Bross shutdown also stems from Reber's response to the failed lawsuit protection bid, which came about after bicyclist James Nelson won a $7.3 million lawsuit in 2019. Nelson had fought for 11 years against the military branch after riding into a sinkhole at the U.S. Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. The verdict would ultimately scare other landowners of popular recreation destinations, including the owner of Mount Lindsay near the Great Sand Dunes, into limiting access to their private property to avoid costly liability. Decalibron-like hikers are required to start their journey at the Kite Lake Trailhead, which sits at 12,000 feet in a verdant valley that opens to the south to let waters run down a clear, quiet creek toward Alma. The parking lot at Kite Lake was full with a few dozen cars as Kadeen and I prepared to make our climb. We showed up a few minutes before 7.30 a.m., paid the $8 fee. Kadeen only had a $20 bill on him, but he happily made a donation to the U.S. Forest Service and found a lucky lone parking spot near the trailhead. Hikers start off by crossing the creek and walking to an area that offers two paths, one that takes you up to the saddle between Mount Democrat and Mount Cameron, and another that takes you along the western face of Mount Bross. A sign at the entrance stated clearly that the way toward Mount Democrat and Mount Lincoln, which also takes you to Mount Cameron, was open, but that Mount Bross was still closed. We took the way up to Mount Bross with the intention of swinging left toward Lincoln instead of summiting the Forbidden Peak. The hike was smooth for the first three or four hundred feet, with a stream and small waterfall accompanying us along our way until we were about 13,000 feet up, where the real fun begins. The ground in this area is mostly loose rocks and occasional wildflowers. When we left Bross to hit Mount Lincoln, we saw other hikers who looked to be about college age coming up in the opposite direction. From the peak of Mount Lincoln, we saw lines of hikers who looked like ants marching on Bross's wide-open summit. Mount Lincoln appeared to be the most popular attraction over the weekend, despite its peak offering the least amount of hikeable space compared with the other three mountains. Once we had summited Mount Bross and Lincoln, Kadeen and I felt we had gone high enough that Mount Cameron would be a straight shot of walking, without having to climb much more. After chewing down some energy bars, we arrived on the almost flat, reddish-orange summit of Mount Cameron just before noon. We peered out at the descent toward Mount Democrat and the steep rise to its peak, and pondered the hell we were about to put ourselves through. After passing by the closed mine on the saddle between Mount Cameron and Mount Democrat, we encountered a couple with two ferrets who asked if I could take their photo, which I did, obviously. Then, with almost no energy left, we proceeded to hike up the rocky face of Mount Democrat. At its peak, Kadeen and I looked around and saw rain clouds on all sides of us. Their wisps danced over the peaks on other ranges around us, and we sat there for a moment, regaining our strength for the way down and enjoying the sights of curious marmots, along with a deep silence far from the city. We did it, I told Gadine. Now we can tell everyone about it. As we limped back down, I splashed my sunburned face with water from a stream and tried bringing myself back to reality. The prospect of cold beers and cheesecakes at Crossroads Pub and Grill in Pine Junction weighed heavily on my mind.
A male hiker who chatted us up on his descent summed up our day and decision to ignore the Mount Bros closure signs and body fatigue perfectly. They can find me or whatever. I don't care, he said. It's just so beautiful up here. Four. Thief posing as golfer wanted for stealing golf bags outside Denver clubhouses by Chris Perez. Is nothing sacred? Someone has been going around Denver posing as a golfer and stealing golf bags from the bag drop areas in front of clubhouses with at least six courses targeted in recent weeks, according to city officials. The male suspect has been dressed head to toe in golf gear for his heists, which have gone down at the Willis Case Golf Course, Kennedy Golf Course, Welshire Golf Course, Fox Hollow Golf Course, Broken Tee Golf Course, and Legacy Ridge Golf Course. It's sad, said Susie Helmerich, director of Pro Shop Operations for the city and county of Denver. It's one person who's stealing them. He looks like your typical golfer. He's wearing golf clothes in all the instances we've seen. Golf hat, khaki shorts, etc. He just pulls up to the front of the clubhouse, then either walks around the clubhouse, or he just grabs a bag that might be sitting out front and drives off. According to Helmerich, Multiple bags have been stolen since the start of summer from bag drop areas, the spots where golfers typically leave their clubs as they check in for their tee times or visit the pro shop. Golfers do it all the time, and you don't think twice about it, Helmerich said. We all have just left our clubs thinking they're safe and that everything's okay. And then you come out, and they're gone. Describing the dapper delinquent's tactics, Helmerich tells Westward, He's taking clubs from the front, taking clubs off of carts. He has a dark-colored Nissan Pathfinder SUV with a bunch of ladders on the top of it. We have him on our surveillance cameras, and we have his license plates. We have filed police reports in all of the different jurisdictions, and he just hasn't been caught yet. Through a spokesperson, the Denver Police Department confirms that it is investigating multiple thefts at golf courses across the Mile High City, including three run by Parks and Recreation, Willis Case, Kennedy, and Wilshire. Denver Police is aware of these thefts and actively investigating, the spokesperson adds. No arrests have been made at this time. As these cases are under investigation, video is not available at this time. Anyone with information is asked to call Crime Stoppers. On Monday, July 31st, the social media team for Denver Golf sent out notices informing the public about the golf bag thief and what to do moving forward. You just have to be mindful of your stuff, Helmerich says. I think that goes for anything, anywhere, anytime these days. Parks and Rec have been dealing with lots of bad behavior at city-run facilities in recent weeks and months, ranging from several instances of vandalism to the theft of a digital swim clock at the Congress Park pool. It's sad at this time where we have these individuals that do not value our park system, said Scott Gilmore, Deputy Executive Director of Parks and Rec, after the clock was swiped. It has since been recovered, and no charges are being filed against the juveniles responsible. The golf bag heists add to the challenges that Parks and Rec is currently facing, including Denver's water fountain debacle, in which numerous water fountains have been broken by vandals or shut down because of staff shortages and a major shutdown of public bathrooms, also because of vandalism. In mid-July, the department reported that someone had stolen all of the copper tubing from the Ruby Hill Park bathrooms. Over the past month, 
There have been at least 10 portable toilets in parks lost to vandalism. Over the past 16 months, there have been four instances of explosive devices being set off inside Washington Park toilets. These people just do not respect the public realm, Gilmore added. Denver golf officials hope that surveillance footage of the golf bag suspect will be the key to catching him, especially since he's been caught on camera at both courses and pawn shops. He's been trying to sell the golf sets, Helmerich says. He's been to pawn shops, played against sports. He's been doing it all over the city. Until he's caught, the city's golf courses are stepping up their game. We're all kind of in this together, Helmerich says. We've been communicating and letting each other know what's going on and how we're dealing with it, that we're all in on this. Wheeling and Dealing Another Bike Infrastructure Snarl in Capitol Hill by Benjamin Neufeld A traffic diverter on the corner of Franklin Street and East 14th Avenue has become yet another flashpoint in the city's campaign to create community transportation networks with infrastructure improvements including bike lanes and bikeways. The project is a bold program aimed at rapidly expanding safe and comfortable transportation options within three areas of Denver, according to the Denver Department of Transportation and Infrastructure, with the focus currently on large sections of Northwest Denver, Central Denver, and South Central Denver. But no matter where bike safety features show up, confusion and conflict tend to follow. The latest controversy involves Franklin Street in the Cheeseman Park and City Park West neighborhoods, seven blocks north of where neighbors are disputing whether newly installed bollards that demarcate a bike lane on East 7th Avenue are even useful, much less aesthetically pleasing. In this case, a traffic diverter installed on the corner of Franklin and 14th in mid-June prevents drivers from heading north on the 1400 block. I've heard from numerous, numerous friends and acquaintances who are unhappy about it, and there's quite a bit of chatter about it on social media sites, primarily focused on the diverter, says Brad Cameron, president of Neighbors for a Greater Capitol Hill, one of two registered neighborhood organizations that represents the area. Although he notes that he's not speaking for the RNO, which has not taken a position on the project, the conversations he's had indicate that there is a lack of understanding of the city's logic and why they think it was necessary. According to Scott Vickers, a longtime resident of the 1400 block of Franklin, the diverter is unnecessary, ugly, and confusing. It's hard to know what DOTI is trying to achieve here. The diverters are paint-slash-flex posts, or concrete, that prevent vehicles from turning or traveling through onto a particular street, but still allow people walking and bicycling to do so, notes DOTI's website. In this case, cars are prevented from heading north on Franklin across 14th, or from turning north onto Franklin from 14th. Bicyclists, meanwhile, can pass through the diverter. Much of the concern focuses on a driver's need to try to get across Colfax, Cameron says. Unless you live in the neighborhood, the thought would be, well, you just go around the block. What's the big deal? And, well, it isn't that easy, because you're crammed between the one ways of 13th and 14th, and then you have Colfax, which is a very busy arterial. The diverter cuts off most of the neighborhood's access to the signal at Franklin and Colfax, 
The next signaled intersection that gives a driver a safe opportunity to cross Colfax or turn left onto that street is two blocks east at Williams Street. Is it the end of the world? No, Cameron notes. It isn't just aesthetics. It's the real impact. And then there's the mystery of why cars heading south are allowed to make U-turns in order to park on the east side of that block of Franklin, then exit to the north. Nor parking is allowed on the west side of the block, making the U-turn a necessity for street parking residents. Carolyn Schomp, vice president of the group, doesn't think the city did enough to engage residents of the area. The city's contention that it engaged in a robust neighborhood engagement process just simply isn't true, she says. The neighbors along Franklin, between 14th and Colfax, say that they were never contacted by the city. Between 2020 and 2022, as this project on Franklin Street was discussed, DOTI held virtual community meetings, distributed public surveys, met with community leaders, presented to registered neighborhood organizations, and held virtual office hours to gather community feedback to determine where this bikeway should be located and what the bikeway should look like, counters Nancy Kuhn, spokesperson for DOTI. Before we began construction, we distributed flyers in the mail to impacted homes. Vickers says he doesn't recall receiving such a flyer. But according to the other RNO representing the area, Capitol Hill United Neighborhoods, the city's public engagement process on this particular project was more than sufficient. We've worked with DOTI since early 2020 and engaged our membership and other neighbors to do the same, says CHUN President Christopher Mansour. This included sharing early concerns that were voiced by residents and passing them along to city planners. CHUN is committed to being thought partners around these and other issues. The number of pedestrians and bikers currently being injured or killed on Denver's streets is unacceptable. According to Kuhn, the Franklin Street project is split into two parts. From Cheeseman Park to East 17th Avenue, DOTI installed a neighborhood bikeway corridor with signage, striping, and vertical elements along the corridor to prioritize people walking and bicycling. From East 17th Avenue to East 21st Avenue, DOTI put in a dedicated bike lane with some buffered por portions. DOTI determines what type of bicycle infrastructure goes where based on vehicle speeds and volumes, she says, adding that the goal of the bikeway corridor is to limit vehicle speeds to under 20 miles an hour and vehicle volume to under 1,500 vehicles a day. The intent of the diverter at 14th is to ensure we reach the vehicle volume threshold, and the intent of the bollards and other intersection treatments is to slow cars down to less than 20 miles an hour, Kuhn continues, where we have vehicle speeds and volumes that are far in excess of those thresholds and we don't think intervention can lower them, we stripe dedicated bike lanes. That's what the city created north of 17th Avenue. Research has shown that neighborhood bikeways and protected bike lanes, like you see in much of downtown, are the safest and most comfortable bicycle facility types and will help us reach our goal of more people bicycling in Denver, Kuhn adds. Rob Tofnes, an active biker and a co-founding member, member of the Denver Bicycle Lobby, says that he appreciates the diverter, even if drivers sometimes ignore the restrictions. I like that you can take Franklin from Cheeseman now and more easily connect to 16th Avenue. 
The diverter means there are fewer drivers breathing down your neck, in my opinion. We're glad that DOTI has been installing diverters on their newly constructed neighborhood bikeways like Franklin, says Molly McKinley, policy director for the Denver Streets Partnership. These treatments help limit traffic volumes, which makes it more comfortable to ride a bike. There are countless unobstructed north-south streets in the neighborhood, yet very few that are safe and comfortable for people riding bikes, and none that are truly protected. Even so, she adds, I think DOTI could do more to educate drivers how to navigate new infrastructure, like this diverter, to help cut down on confusion. We are seeing this type of pushback across the city when something new comes in on the street, McKinley continues. Change is uncomfortable, especially when it happens on your street. But the reality is that we all live in a city where things in the public realm are going to continue to change to meet our city's climate, air quality, and safety goals, and you don't own the street in front of your home. What to know about Denver's new compost carts as first wave rolls out by Katie Cheshire. Starting July 31st, more than 10,000 Denver households will receive green compost carts in the first wave of deliveries for the city's new pay-as-you-throw trash system approved by Denver City Council in June of 2022. Denver successfully implemented weekly recycling for all residents served by the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure in January. This is the next step toward the goal of diverting waste from landfills to recycling or composting. The first residents to receive composting carts are in Solid Waste Collection District 2, which includes City Park, City Park West, Clayton, Cole, El Rio Swansea, Five Points, North Capitol Hill, Skyland, Whittier, and parts of Globeville. The city is prioritizing neighborhoods that currently have low diversion rates. New customers will receive a compost cart, a small kitchen pail, and an updated compost how-to guide to get them started, DOTI announced. The kitchen pail is designed so that people can immediately toss scraps there before taking them out to their green cart. The city estimates that 50 to 75 percent of what people currently put in the trash could be recycled or composted. To help residents prepare and understand how to use their carts correctly, the team has been attending community events, doing Spanish and English door-to-door outreach, and direct messaging through our app and in Recollect, says Nancy Kuhn, Marketing and Communications Director for DOTI. The rules for composting are actually pretty simple. If it's food or yard scraps or plant trimmings, it belongs in compost. Everything else should either be recycled if possible or trashed if not. Paper products, including tissues, paper towels, napkins, tissue paper, brightly colored paper, paper scraps and shredded paper, tea bags and coffee liners, pizza boxes, are all not compostable or recyclable, DOTI notes. However, coffee grounds themselves can be composted if dumped out of the filter. Even packaging and products such as cups, plates, and takeout containers that are certified as compostable don't belong in Denver-provided compost bins, the city says. Compostable bags don't either, unless they are three gallons or smaller, or Compost Manufacturing Alliance certified. No plastics, glass, metals, diapers, pet waste, even in compostable bags, treated wood, rubber bands, twist ties, produce stickers, sod, mulch, or dirt, DOTI requests. But don't worry. 
DOTI has composting tips and a waste directory. If you're confused about what bin to toss some waste in, just type it into the directory and it'll tell you what exactly to do. Plus, DOTI isn't treating residents who contaminate their recycling or compost like trash. It will send an inspector out to homes that have contaminated waste or overfilled trash bins before issuing any citation. Education is key, Kuhn notes. Our audits are also proving to be a good way to communicate with people, she continues. DOTI has audited 1,458 recycling and compost carts in the city and tagged 386 as contaminated. Of those tagged, 75% of the people corrected their mistakes on the first try. We've not issued any formal citations, but when contamination is found, a tag indicates to the driver that they should not collect the cart and educates the customer about what should and should not be in the cart, Kuhn says. The department plans to audit Solid Waste Collection District 2 as compost rolls out there. The expanded waste services ordinance allows fines between $500 and $999 for contamination should DOTI ever reach that point. The program's aim of getting more waste out of landfills seems to be reaching its target, with a 12% increase in recycling in Denver so far this year. That accounts for 2,443 more tons of recyclable material making it into recycling instead of heading to the landfill. Of DOTI's 30,000 existing compost customers who'd signed up for composting carts before the ordinance passed, compost collection is up 6% this year. The expanded waste services ordinance allows people to pick what size trash can they want, paying for that size. Then everyone gets recycling and compost as part of the deal. The options are 35 gallons, which fits two to three tall kitchen bags for $9 a month, 65 gallons, which fits four to five bags for $13 a month, and 95 gallons, which fits seven to eight bags for $21 a month. So far, 31,100 households have 35-gallon trash carts, 55,946 households have 65-gallon carts, and 88,818 households have 95-gallon carts. DOTI recommends people wait to get their compost carts before adjusting their sizing, which can be done on Denver Utilities Online. Those who are paying for trash service but haven't received composting yet are getting a $9 quarterly credit on their bills until their neighborhood gets green carts. Once service begins in that neighborhood, we will remove the credit on future invoices, Kuhn says. Residents don't need to be home to get their carts and can use them the week after they are delivered. After Solid Waste Collection District 2, DOTI plans to roll compost carts out to Solid Waste Collection District 4, which includes residents in Montbello, Gateway, and Green Valley Ranch. All that jazz. Dazzle's grand reopening in new DPAC digs happens this weekend by Emily Ferguson. As Dazzle prepares for its highly anticipated opening at 1080 14th Street this weekend, Longtime patrons will be pleased to know that the Seminole Jazz Club's new space in the Denver Performing Arts Complex harks back to its early years at 930 Lincoln Street, according to the venue's marketing manager, Kelly Dawkins. My parents have actually been taking me to Dazzle since it opened in 97, she says, and this space is more reflective of the 9th and Lincoln space. 
There was the main listening room, and then there was the outside bar area. And we have a main listening room here, and then we have a bar and a piano lounge that are distinctive but connected. The flow is a lot smoother, with three separate spaces that are still, still very interconnected. The original location had been the home of Fujian Japanese Restaurant, and when Karen Stork and Mike Snyder, Miles Snyder opened Dazzle in 1997, it was primarily as an eatery and bar, too. But jazz was there from the beginning, with Snyder using his jazz CD collection to make a laid-back soundtrack for the restaurant. Current co-owner Donald Rosa came on board as managing partner in 2001, and in the wake of 9-11, he pushed for live jazz. I said, we're going to celebrate being American, and our original art form is jazz, Rosa told us last year. And Miles said he was on board with it, because Miles taught me about jazz. I didn't know anything about it. I was a rocker. Rosa became the sole owner in 2003, and soon brought in general manager Matt Ruff, who stayed in that position as a co-owner. The duo currently co-owns Dazzle with Austin Andres and Jan Cleveland. The club became immensely popular in the jazz scene, starting out by booking primarily local acts and then adding national and international jazz, jazz legends such as Jim Hall, Jimmy Heath, Robert Glasper, Benny Golson, and countless others. By 2017, the club needed more space, and it moved to the historic Bowers Building at 1512 Curtis Street. Then came the pandemic. Even though it had to close in March of 2020, like all restaurants and venues, Dazzle's team still had the community's musicians in mind and helped organize a statewide drum circle to keep spirits up during the somber times. When the pandemic happened and everything shut down, Dazzle opened almost immediately a food pantry for musicians, and then they started live-streaming performances, Dawkins recalls. Dazzle didn't take any money for that. They put the musicians' Venmo on there, so people paid the musicians directly, she adds. They wanted the musicians to survive and get through so that they could as well. It's a really symbiotic relationship. And fortunately for Dazzle, there's no dearth of talented jazz musicians in this city, it also helps that Denver and Colorado just have such an incredible talent pool with so much skill and artistry, Dawkins notes. We may get recognized for a lot of the touring shows that we bring through, but almost every single local act that we put on our stage can easily compete with the same level of talent as the touring shows. It's just having that quality of music available so readily to highlight on stages that has helped Dazzle do so well. While there have been many jazz venues in Denver, Dazzle set itself apart not only with the diversity of musicians it books, but also the respect it shows them. We are a serious listening room, Dawkins explains. During our shows, we ask that conversations be kept to a bare minimum and that all electronics be silenced so that the focus is solely on the music and being able to appreciate the experience of live music. Although the venue weathered the pandemic with the help of a sympathetic landlord, Rosa knew it needed a different home, and last August, Dazzle announced that it would be moving into the Performing Arts Complex, which is owned by the city. Donald has actually been trying to move into this space for 15 years, and he's been talking on and off to Denver Arts and Venues about it, and the timing just never worked out right, Dawkins says. Then it was time to renew the lease at Bowers, and... 
the timing just finally worked out right, that the space was available, and Dazzle was able to leave because of a natural ending. Although the target date for Dazzle's move was November, we had the same experience that most restaurants and bars have in Denver, and there's just a very slow permitting process, Dawkins explains. And, you know, we worked with Denver, and we finally got through it. Now we get to open. Dazzle had its final show at the Bowers location on July 29th and will celebrate its grand reopening at 1080 14th Street on Friday, August 4th and Saturday, August 5th, with shows each night at 7 and 9.30 p.m. The early shows have already sold out, but that's no surprise. The venue is bringing in Denver jazz veterans Renee Marie and Don Clement, who will perform with John Gunther, Steve Kovalchek, Seth Lewis, and Drew Heller. Don Clement lives here locally and teaches over at MSU and performs nationally. Renee Marie used to live here and is moving back to the city after caring for her parents, who ultimately passed away, Dawkins notes. She's an old legend here. Another legend will be celebrated at Dazzle. The venue is dedicated to maintaining the legacy of another beloved jazz club with the El Chapultepec Piano Lounge in partnership with the El Chapultepec Legacy Project. The Peck, as that iconic venue became, came to be known, opened the day Prohibition ended in 1933 and survived for 87 years under the same family's management before it shuttered for COVID. Jerry Krantz ran it for decades. After his death in 2012, daughters Anna Diaz and Angela Guerrero took over. But in December 2020, they announced that El Chapultepec would close for good. That was a major cultural loss for the city, Dawkins reflects. It was so unpretentious. You could be in there next to state senators, and you could be in there next to homeless people, and everybody was nice. Everybody just came to relax and enjoy the laid-back atmosphere, the good music, have some good conversation, have a good drink, a hot dog, maybe some green chili. That was their entire menu, she recalls. Rosa and the sisters have always known each other and always talked on and off over the years, Dawkins notes. During the pandemic, they spoke extensively. All of the jazz club owners got together and helped with the food pantry. It may have been centered at Dazzle, and Dazzle may have gotten all the recognition for it, but it really was all of the jazz club owners coming together, even just letting all their musicians know about it to spread the word and make sure people were getting the resources that they needed. And then, more recently... Anna and Angela are trademarking their name and want it to be in use. So they started the El Chapultepec Legacy Project and worked with Dazzle to have that name live on. Starting this fall, the El Chapultepec Piano Lounge will stage late-night sets on Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. that showcase local musicians, particularly ones who used to play the peck. And in keeping with that venue's legacy... All of the lounge shows will be free. That makes it even more of a wonderful partnership and collaboration, Dawkins says, because our ticket prices are getting more expensive as other expenses go up, and we know that keeps some people from seeing jazz in our venue, and we hate that. But we have to pay the bills, and with El Chapultepec coming in with no cover late-night sets, it means that people can come hang out in our venue and see it and still hear great, great music without the same costs. And it can pull in a different crowd. And it can pull in the same crowd looking for a different vibe. It just expands the people who can continue to build an appreciation for jazz. 
Dazzle is further honoring Denver's jazz Chicano and Hispanic roots through a collection of paintings by Che Guerrero that depict those who dedicated themselves to the scene, including KUVO radio host Carlos Lando, KUVO Vice President Tita Cartagena, KUVO Music Director Arturo Gomez, and KUVO founder Flo Hernandez-Ramos, as well as Krantz and Freddy Rodriguez Sr., the saxophonist who is a band leader at El Chapultepec and dubbed it the Peck. We have numerous artworks by local artists depicting musicians from the local music scene. We have an installation by Brett Matarazzo of Charles Burrell, who is turning 103 this October, Dawkins adds. He celebrated his birthday last year with us, and he came in and signed the piece. We had an unveiling for him and his family. We also have a Women in Jazz Wall, with six different local musicians who have had a huge impact on the local jazz scene. As Dazzle prepares to ring in a new chapter, it's continuing to put its cultural stamp on Denver. It's just really a milestone to be invited into the Denver Performing Arts Complex, Dawkins concludes, because it shows that the city appreciates and values Dazzle and jazz's place in Colorado's musical and cultural landscape. Point Easy is now serving a seasonal weekend brunch menu in Whittier by Kristen Pazulski. Point Easy, which opened nearly a year ago in the Whittier neighborhood, has filled the gap left by the Whittier pub after its closure in 2020 with a bright and airy space and stellar seasonal menu. Now, weekend brunch has been added to its lineup, with a new menu available from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. on Saturdays and Sundays. This was a goal since the beginning, says Dan Phelps, who co-owns the eatery with Andy Bruch. When it debuted, Point Easy's culinary program was headed up by Phelps's brother and partner in the project, Dennis Den Phelps. But just a month after opening, Den unexpectedly passed away. Now the kitchen is being run by executive chef Carlton Hollaby. Through that transition, Phelps and Bruch held off on brunch, but over the past few weeks, everything felt like it was coming together. Eventually, you just have to do it, Phelps says of the decision. The brunch menu includes breakfast staples, creative dishes, and takes on some of Point Easy's more popular dinner dishes, like the pasta with pistachio pesto for $23, which is served on house-made bucatini rather than the bite-sized cavatelli that's used in the evenings. We wanted to cross-utilize between services, Phelps notes. The menu will be seasonal, and Hollaby promises more egg dishes will be added, including a French omelette that he's particularly excited about. He says French omelettes can be tough to add to a busy brunch kitchen because they can be time-intensive. It seems hard because it takes a lot of attention, but it's one of my favorite things to have for breakfast, Hollaby says. Point Easy is located at 2000 East 28th Avenue and is open for brunch from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Saturday and Sunday. Dinner hours are 5 to 9 p.m. Wednesday, Thursday, and Sunday, and 5 to 10 p.m. Friday and Saturday. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.